Well, I wonder if you've ever heard of the book, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. It was written by Thomas Jefferson in the early 1800s, and it's more commonly known by the name that we've given it, the Jefferson Bible. Have you heard of this before? He wrote his first edition of this Jefferson Bible in his first term as president of the United States. We don't have any existing copies of that one any longer, but we know that he had a second copy that he did after his latest term as president towards the end of his life, and that remains until today. The way that Thomas Jefferson made this Bible, Jefferson's Bible, was that he literally took a King James version of the Bible and a blade and cut out portions of Jesus' speaking and glued it into a journal, quite literally, transferred one piece over to the other. His intent was to remove out of the New Testament all of the teachings to the church to remove all of the references to supernatural things, things like even resurrection or miracles, the deity of Jesus, any reference to the Trinity. He would even, in the middle of a story, a teaching of Jesus in a parable, in which he would eventually heal someone, he'll stop mid-sentence in cutting that out and pasting it into his journal in order to prevent any miracles from getting into the Jefferson Bible. Now, in so doing, he made it pretty clear that he was not, in fact, a Christian. Jefferson, as many of the early founding fathers of the Americas, was a deist. A deist. Now, Christianity is theistic. It's, it means that we believe that there is a God who operates over and in all of his creation. Deism, on the other hand, is one of its most notable features, it says that There was a God who spun the earth into existence, created everything that we now see. It would be nonsense to think otherwise, but he's now a distant God. He got things running. He has retreated back into the heavens, perhaps creating other worlds somewhere, and we are on our own. So we should look for morals. We should look for the signs that he has created the world, but deism would say that he is not actively working in the lives of people today. It's, of course... Is almost precisely the opposite view of God that the book of Ruth in the Old Testament presents. Now, it's easy to argue that the whole Bible would clearly present the opposite view of this, but as we've been in the book of Ruth now for about the past six weeks, one theme that continues to rise up over and over and over and over is that God is not just a creator God who made everything start, but that he is deliberately working in history in order to bring about his purposes. We've seen already through the book of Ruth that it is God who brings famine on Bethlehem in the first chapter. We see it is God who brings the rain on the lands to relieve them from the famine. We see that it is God who unites two of the key characters, Boaz and Ruth, together. And it is God who, as we're going to see today, enables Ruth to conceive, give birth to a child. That it is God who provides a redeemer for Naomi. And by extension, it is God who redeems his people through the events of history, particularly the ones pointed to in this story. This big idea makes us wonder, doesn't it? That if we were to zoom in on any particular story, particularly in the Old Testament, we're seeing some of these things played out, the seeds of God's redemptive plan put into the ground. What might we see God doing if we had eyes to see it? The obvious application of that idea is that no matter what you are going through now, 
God is using it to work for himself a glorious story of redemption throughout human history. We say that God is sovereign. It's a fancy way of saying that God is in control. He's working in history. Imagine if a person were to assemble a puzzle upside down without looking at a box, without looking at the pictures of it, just upside down and carefully make sure that all the pieces align. We wouldn't know what those pieces were meant to convey until one day when the puzzle was complete, flipped it over and see the picture. In a similar way, our lives are all built together in this amazing narrative. And, and I don't believe that they're disconnected and they're not supposed to be separate from one another for forever, but that God is working something, knitting something together that someday we will see and experience. And in eternity, we will revel in and worship him for forever. We read the Old Testament. We want to look back at these stories and consider them important for us. We want to, want to get to know our family history the beginning of a story is important. Actually, this is why Hollywood makes so much money off of prequels to already existing storylines. Why in the world would you go see a prequel, a movie that takes place before one that already came out? Because we're fascinated by origins. We want to know where that character and that storyline was rooted, where it developed, where it came from. We love origin stories. The Bible is full of hundreds of stories that tell one greater story of God getting glory through the redemption of a people for his great name. So today we're going to pick up where we left off last week in chapter 4 of Ruth. If you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in Ruth 4, verses 7 through 22. I had to cut the sermon off short last week. We're going to see if we can make it through the rest of the book today. That's the plan. The intention is to make it through the rest of Ruth today. So what we're going to do is we're going to read through this text. I'm going to try to explain each of the parts and pieces. And then at the end, I'm going to try to draw just a couple of application points. I've titled this sermon, The Redeemer and the Redeemed, Part 2. Last week was Part 1. This is The Redeemer and the Redeemed. And so we're going to conclude with two notable points to be made about the ultimate Redeemer, Jesus, and those who will ultimately be redeemed, the church. Where we left last week... This is a story of a family who had moved from Bethlehem in Israel to Moab during a time of a great famine. Uh, the sons in that family married Moabite women, then died. They passed away. Father passed away. The, all the men were gone. And it was just Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. One of those women went home to her household in Moab, and it was just Naomi and Ruth who come back to Bethlehem once the famine was gone and the plenty returned to Bethlehem. And God begins weaving the story together about how these women will be cared for and taken care of through a man named Boaz, who's in the same family line. I'm going to go ahead and read the text we're going to do today. I'll, I'll pause, pray, and then we'll dive back in. Starting in verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malan. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malan, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. 
Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Let's pray. Lord, as we read this story today, it's hard as Christians today on the other side of the cross, historically, to not see this redemption just beaming out of this passage into our eyes. Lord, let that happen if it's in your will. Let that happen if that is the intent of this passage, as I believe that it is. Let your spirit wash over us with the understanding of what you were giving in a microcosm, a little picture here of what will ultimately be true. We need your help as we do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Going back to the beginning here. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. I'm not going to go into all the nitty-gritty details of what had happened in the passage previous. You're welcome to go back and check those sermons out in order to kind of get a better understanding of what was happening then. I sought to answer a lot of the detailed questions that might come up when a person reads through the story for the first time. But Boaz had gotten before him ten elders and a near redeemer and said, Near redeemer, it is up to you and you're the next in the family line to redeem, purchase back the land that belongs to this family. And as you purchase that land, you will also gain a wife, Ruth, who is a widow of a deceased relative of ours. And we are to do this in order to carry on the family name. The near redeemer said, no, 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 I don't want anything to do with that. He's like, whoa, whoa, I didn't, I'll take the land. I don't want the wife. And so he turns to Boaz and says, you take it and said, you redeem it. And at this point, the author pauses and gives us a little parenthesis. He explains a custom in Israel that'd be helpful for us to know as he tells us about this exchange of a sandal. Now, as I was reading this this week, I couldn't help but think like, man, it would have been really nice if he gave us that parentheses in regards to the earlier passage of Ruth laying down at his feet and uncovering his feet. But this is the one that the author says, you need to understand this to understand what's taking place. This cultural note this alert to this custom is to help us understand what's going on when the near redeemer says, you buy it for yourself, and he hands a sandal to him. It's kind of like him, 
It's like a signature. It's like it's done. It's, as soon as you take this offers on the table, there's no more negotiations. I am ready to entirely pass this redemption responsibility off to you. And everybody's watching as witnesses. Now, where does this idea originate? Where does the symbol, the, the, the sandal language originate? It actually goes back to the same passage we referenced last week regarding what's called leveret marriage. That's from the line of Levi, the Levitical law, leveret marriage from Deuteronomy 25. Now, I read through the first six verses last week. I'm just going to read through the next four to give you an idea of what would be the response for a person who did not honor leveret marriage. Leveret marriage, of course, was the responsibility of a near relative who was not yet married to marry his deceased brother's widow so that that man's name would not be snuffed out of the chronology, the genealogies of Israel. This is the passage that comes from in Deuteronomy 25. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders, just like they did here in Ruth, and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Wouldn't it be interesting if he still did some of these things? So if a man were to enter into a business dealing, just a, just a typical business dealing according to the author and Ruth, he would give his sandal to the other as a sort of promise of payment. Hey, this is certain. Everyone's watching. This is, this is symbolic of a, of a signature. If later you were trying to identify who's the one who said this is okay, the one who's only wearing one sandal. Like the Cinderella thing, you match them, get it? But if he refused in this legal case to honor his deceased brother with the duty of leveret marriage, she would take it from him. He wouldn't be giving it of his own free will. She'd be taking it from him, demonstrating that he was unwilling to do it himself. It's kind of symbolic of the fact that by not honoring that cultural obligation, he was in effect taking a right from his brother and she was going to take the sandal from him as a picture of that. Now this does remind us that this part, the marriage component of Deuteronomy 25 is not a law but a civic, or more so even a family, responsibility. The punishment was not a fine. The punishment was not death or beating. The punishment was public humiliation. You humiliate the woman by saying, nothing can make me marry you. Well, she will return the favor. Now, here's a question that this text might propose for us as we're looking in the book of Ruth. Last week, I told you that the near redeemer's name was Ned. I made that up. We were giving him a name to make it a little easier to follow the storyline. Near redeemer Ned said, whoa, 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 I'm happy to have the land. I don't want the woman. In that case, should he have had to undergo that humiliation? Would it have been right then for the next thing to take place for him to leave the sandal on? Ruth, come, take the sandal off, spit in his face, all that kind of stuff. I think the answer is no. And here's why I think it's no. First of all, 
Deuteronomy 25, while it's an obligation and not a law, it's most specifically for the brother. Now, it is extended to near relatives, as we see, obviously, in Ruth, but that was the primary thing. He, he might not have even had any knowledge that she existed before this point. Wait, 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 what? I was coming in to, to buy some crackers. You're telling me that I, I have a wife now potential? In the t- well, I was not ready for that today. That's, that's possible. He probably have heard the story, but he didn't know he was the Redeemer. Boaz is the one who makes that clear to him earlier in the story. Second, Deuteronomy 25 made it clear that if the man says no to the woman, who first, for the record, never approached him, he was never approached by Ruth, what next happens is that the elders go and try to convince him, please do this, this is a good idea, please, we'll come around you as a whole community and help you make sure this all works out, it's going to go well for you, this is the way this is supposed to, supposed to work out, take care of your brother's name, watch out for your relatives, this is good. And if, at that point, he persists in refusing that's when the next step should take place. He was not tried to be, no, no one in this story so far tried to convince him that he should do it. And lastly, because he did not intend that Ruth would remain uncared for, but that Boaz would care for her instead. So in passing the sandal, it wasn't, I'm not caring for her, no one will. It's, let's let this other man do it who is willing to and eager to do it. I think that's probably why we don't see the proceeding that's described in Deuteronomy 25, because all those conditions weren't met. Back in verse 6, we already see Boaz say, if you won't redeem it, I will. I will. I'll do it. And the man sees it out and says, okay, I'll let you do it. Nevertheless, this man presents a contrast to the character of Boaz. Boaz is the one who's willing to take all the same risks that this near-redeemer Ned was not willing to take. In fact, this near-redeemer operates similarly to the contrast we see at the beginning of the book between Orpah and Ruth. At the beginning, Orpah and Ruth are both appealed to by Naomi. They, she says, listen, the, my sons have passed away. I, I can't offer you anything else. We're going to be destitute. I have nothing good to give to you. Go to your homes. And Orpah eventually says, okay, I will. But Ruth refuses. That contrast shows a worthiness of character, a willingness to sacrifice, to not abandon her mother-in-law that Orpah did not continue with. It doesn't mean there's heavy judgment on Orpah, just like right here doesn't mean there's heavy judgment on this near redeemer, but it does highlight the character, both of Ruth and of Boaz. In both the cases, the worthy character does what the other would not. I'm, of course, using that word worthy because that was used to, to describe both Ruth and Boaz earlier in this story. Verse 9 says, Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malan. If you weren't here earlier, Elimelech was Naomi's husband, and their sons were Chilion and Malan, who married Ruth and Orpah, and all those men had passed away. Now, he says he has bought this from the hand of Naomi. That means he secured the legal right to redeem the land. If you remember, last week we walked through this, Naomi is not even present. She's not even at this proceeding. She doesn't own the land. It doesn't belong to her. He's announcing his intentions to buy the land from the one who currently owns it. Notice the current owner isn't even here. It's a promise. I'm going to go make good on this promise. And while it wasn't the law for a man to marry his deceased brother's wife, it was a law for a landowner to release the land that was being redeemed. 
the current owner would be obligated at this point to release the land for a fair price. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Whoever owned the land is never named in any of this at all. We don't know who the one is who actually has that in his possession, but he's going to have to release that land. I was thinking about this because it's a little bit weird. It feels a little awkward. Like, wow, is that fair? Is that fair to take away that guy's... He was just farming it, and all of a sudden, the guy shows up and says, hey, it's mine now. Gives him money for it. How does that work? I, uh, I had a neighbor out here in South Jordan uh, who works for UDOT, uh, the Utah's Department of Transportation. And it was his particular job to go from house to house and knock on the door and issue uh, a little letter to the person by hand to say, we're knocking your house down because the highway's coming through. And I was like, man, you got a rough job. Well, Bangorder Highway was being expanded and they were adding a bunch of uh, overpasses to where there had previously been um, some stoplights. He said he knocked on one such door and the family was like, well, this is our house. You know, we, we raised our kids here. And somebody's like... Sorry, you're going you're gonna to have to move. Um, gave it to him, and he says, we paid a fair price. He goes, they always pay a more generous price than they would have if they sold it to, a, to another homeowner. So they, they do take care of him in it. But he tells me there was one particular occasion when they started doing Redwood and Bangorder. You guys know that intersection? It took about a year to do that. He goes, they went down, knocked on the door, and the same face answered. Uh, and, it's him. and I said, whoa, man, that guy's got to be so mad. And he goes, the truth is he really wasn't because we gave him more money than, than anyone else would have. And second of all, they had no nostalgia. Nothing was built in. They'd only lived there for like six months before they started into the next one. <laughs> the point is, even today, we know that occasionally communal laws override personal freedoms when the freedom of one individual is seen as less important to the greater good of the community, there may be a time where that could be appropriate. Whether or not you have a place right now to see that we have those things play out for us today. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malan, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So in Boaz's first half of the appeal, in verse 9, he goes, I'm here to buy the land. But here he switches gears and he gets to the real crux of it. This is really what he intends to do. He wants Ruth. He means to redeem Ruth. And he announces that by taking on the responsibility of the kinsman redeemer, the family redeemer, the one who will take her to be his wife for the honorable purpose of perpetuating the name of the dead. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. <clears throat> May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. All the people He's referring to not just the 10 elders, Boaz and the near redeemer, which we talked about last week, was 12 present for the legal necessity of this kind of matter being taken care of. But as the proceeding continued in a public place, it seems that a crowd had gathered. Well, what's going on over here? What's going on? And as they hear what's been promised by Boaz, their response is a blessing on Boaz's household. And the blessing that they invoke is, may the Lord make the woman, Ruth, who is coming into your house like Rachel 
and Leah. Rachel and Leah, of course, are the two wives of Jacob. He had two more concubines as well, but these are the wives of Israel. Jacob would be renamed Israel. Both of these women are significant to these people here because Rachel's tomb was nearby. Genesis 35, 19, it says that when Rachel died in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin, she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. So she was not terribly far away from there where they actually buried her. Leah, of course, is the mother of Judah, which is the tribe in which all these people live. And so we see these people then reckoning to famous people in the history of Judah, those specifically that are associated with Bethlehem. Any stigma that previously was attached to Ruth for being a Moabitess, that is an enemy of Israel, any stigma there, they're saying, no, 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 let that Moabite woman be like Rachel and Leah. The two legitimate wives of Jacob. You won't find any more Jewish women being referenced than those. Let her be like that. Not an outsider forever cast to the winds and looked upon with scorn. Let her be like these two. And may your house be like the house of Perez. Perez was the son of Judah. They say that They should act worthily. Act worthily. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. Ephrathah and Bethlehem are the same place. Ephrathah is the ancient name for Bethlehem. Bethlehem uh, means house of bread. Ephrathah means fruitful. It's the same kind of idea. That's the same location being talked about in a poetic kind of way. Both Boaz and Ruth have already been called worthy. They're the two characters in the story who've been acknowledged by the rest. They're worthy people. And now they're being told, remain this way, act this way, live this way. And whether or not the people realize it, I suspect they don't realize this at all. They are speaking prophetic statements. When they say, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Little could they have known what would happen in the lineage following. Verse 13 says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. It's nine months at least right here, isn't it? A single sentence. The parts of the story have been taking place minute to minute, hour to hour. Here we have a bloop, giant jump. It's like a Christmas card, telling everything that happened the year before. Boaz took Ruth. That's marriage. She became his wife, and he went into her. That's, that's obviously talking about conceiving a baby. And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. The Lord gave her conception. Now, many commentators have pointed to the idea that Ruth, in the first chapter, was said to have been married to Malin for probably 10 years without a child, which was a significant issue for a young woman back then. And so here, God gives her supernaturally the ability to conceive. This is actually really common in the lineage of important peoples in the Bible, isn't it? We see many times God shows up to a woman who is barren and brings about the birth of a child who will be significant to all of Israel. The most significant of all of these supernatural births that you'll read up in the Bible, without a doubt, is that of the Virgin Mary giving birth to Jesus. God wanted to make it so clear that there was something significant, like there was significance leading up to the line of David. 
through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob up to that point, even the significance of, of prophets and priests in the Old Testament who were raised up similarly. There's a greater significance still to Jesus, who wasn't just have a, had a mother whose womb was opened, but a mother who literally was a virgin and miraculously conceived. And here we see again God's display of his sovereignty in this situation. God enters into history. God deliberately plans and executes on a part of this redemptive history to bring about his purposes. And this is where we could end. We could land right here and go, wow, what a great story. Cut, end scene, right off into the sunset. That's, that's a beautiful ending. These two women who've been kind of destitute and separated, emptied out of any goodness, have now found redemption. Praise God for that. But the story continues. Then the women, they said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. The story arc lands right back where it started with Naomi. The start of this story was not about how difficult it was for Ruth or the loss that Elimelech would experience or the sons. The story was through the perspective of Naomi. This woman who followed her husband and sons to Moab lost all three of them and returned back empty. And here we come back to Naomi. The last time the women of the town spoke together in chapter one, it was to highlight Naomi's loss. This is, this is Naomi? This is, this is that one? And she says, I went away full. I've come back empty. Naomi may have lost two sons. But here they say of her that she has gained a daughter who is more to her than seven sons. Look at what they say. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. Who's the one who blessed her? Was it Boaz? Was it the birth of the child, just the fact that the child was born? Was it rains randomly reappearing in the land of Bethlehem? No, God has done this. He did not leave you without a redeemer. One interesting note, who's the redeemer in this couple of verses? Commentators found this really fascinating as I was reading through and studying the views on, on this most commentators agree together that the Redeemer here switches, and it's no longer Boaz. It's not even technically the Lord, but it's the Son, who they'll name Obed in the next verse. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you to stay without a Redeemer, and may his, the Redeemer's name, be renowned in Israel. He, the Redeemer, shall be to you a restorer of life and nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to the Redeemer. And interesting. Same word, Goel. It's used for Redeemer throughout the entire book. It's now applied to the one who was born. Maybe for your personal studies. It's cool to see how that switches. Laura and I named one of our daughters Naomi because we thought it was beautiful and it means lovely, sweet. And she really is. If you meet Naomi, you'll go, wow. Makes us want to name our next kid Obedience or something like that. Right? <laughs> but the next child we named Mara. 
And people who are familiar with the Old Testament passages on this go, Mara, Mara, Mara. Does, doesn't Mara mean bitter? And I was like, yeah, you should have been there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Mara, Mara means bitter. And you'll remember back in chapter 1, when Naomi returns to Bethlehem, and the women, just like here, gather around Naomi. She goes, don't call me lovely. Don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter, for the Lord has made me bitter. And the first reason we chose Mara is we thought it sounded pretty. The second reason is the significance of this story that my wife and I both very much love. She said, call me bitter. Call me Mara. Call- this is now how you'll remember me. But by the end of the story, the woman who had proclaimed of herself that she was bitter has now been overwhelmed by the redeeming love of God. The story doesn't end with a bitter woman. The story ends with one overjoyed. Can you imagine the counsel Naomi would want to give to another woman that she meets in similar circumstances? She goes, I once called myself bitter. And look what God has done. Can you imagine that coming from Naomi? God ultimately provides redemption for her. And isn't that cool? It returns back to Naomi. It was Ruth who was redeemed by Boaz. It's Naomi who was redeemed by this son. God provides for all of them. God uses our suffering for his great glory. When you get to heaven, if you were to revisit with God all the bad things that you've experienced in your life, and then hear him tell you the purposes behind all of those things, you and I would agree with him on everything that happened. God, why? Why did you make that happen? That was so painful. If we were to hear what God was working on, what God was doing, I do not believe for a moment that in heaven we'll disagree with God. But you shouldn't have. That wasn't good. God is working as he has been through Naomi's story. For his glory and our great joy. Then Naomi took the child <coughs> and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. His women, it sounds like there's a gang of ladies who hangs out. And they... they they gather around when this is taking place. And it doesn't mean we don't, we don't see that Boaz and Ruth have nothing to do with the name. We, we see that they, it's the only time in the Old Testament where the women are said to have given the name to somebody who's not even their own child. <clears throat> and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. Obed is the short form for Obadiah. It's like we see, see Dave, usually short form for David. Obadiah is a name given to at least a dozen different men in the Old Testament. And it means servant or servant of Yahweh. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, if we had been reading this story with no prior knowledge to the ending, it might not have seemed significant historically until we got to this sentence. So imagine yourself being a little Jewish kid and your grandpa maybe gets you around a fire at night and let me tell you all you kids a story about why it is that we see God working in our lives and he begins to tell the story there'd have been there'd been like wow that's a that's a cool story that's great until this name came he was the father of Jesse the father of David 
what? That, David? I think that's what's going on. Ruth here becomes the mother of the most significant figure in the Old Testament, apart from maybe Moses, maybe. Ruth became David's great-grandmother. The mother of Obed, the grandmother of Jesse, the great-grandmother of David. I met my great-grandma before she passed away, one of them. She passed away on my seventh birthday. I'll never forget that. And I remember meeting her and interacting with her, and I can't help but think that it's very, very possible, maybe likely, that Ruth met David. She might have met him after he had been anointed by Samuel to be the leader of Israel, maybe even after he slew Goliath. Nevertheless, she is the one through whom David would eventually come. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. (coughs) Up until this point, (coughs) we'd not considered the birth line of Boaz. If you're listening to the story, it's probably not likely that you'd be pausing and thinking too much about that. We knew that he was in the line of Elimelech. Somehow he was connected to that family. He was connected there, and that's why this whole thing worked out. But we hadn't really thought about where he ultimately had come from. But he comes from the generations of Perez. Perez was mentioned in verse 12 as another famous son of Judah. Now, this is one of four places that this list shows up in the Bible with very very minor variations. In the book of Luke, there's a slight variation. There's additional name added in there. Admin just highlights the way that stories have been told in the Old Testament. But this list here includes ten names. Boaz is the seventh. And David is the tenth. And there's likely significance to those numbers because of the dates that we know these things took place. In other words, there's almost certainly, as there are in many of the other genealogies in the Bible, intended omissions. We knew of other characters, but they only noted the notable or significant ones. And the idea that someone fathered another would just mean kind of like Abraham is the father of all the Israelites. Jacob is the father of all the Israelites. This kind of language is used all the time. It's an abbreviated list. We're not sure where the skips are before or after Boaz, but Matthew's list includes something else that could be of significance for us. I want you to see. Matthew tells us of a similar line. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And he'll continue on, Jesse, the father of David. That list, of course, is ultimately pointing to Jesus How Jesus comes in the line of Judah, in the line of Boaz, in the line of Ruth, in the line of David. Jesus is in that line. This verse right here makes it really clear to us that Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute from Jericho, from the book of Joshua, is in the immediate family line of Boaz. In fact, the clearest reading just says that she is his immediate mother. 
It probably, and the language allows for this, it probably is more likely that these lists are truncated and that Rahab was a grandmother or even a great-grandmother to Boaz. Nevertheless, Boaz was certainly a direct descendant of Rahab. His family line was one familiar with marrying non-Israelite women. And this is how the book ends. Telling us of a genealogy. Why? Why would a genealogy be a significant way to end the book of Ruth? What's the significance of this list? I keep looking down here at Mark. Mark Smith, when I first met Mark Smith and I put his phone number into uh, my little contacts, I had to specify which Mark Smith he was. You ever met a person like that? You'll probably not meet another person who spells their name quite like me. That's kind of a cool feature. I like that. But if you look in a person's list of, a list of their names, you might find two people of the same ones because they have kind of similar names. The last name to us now used to be more connected with the father's side of the family in the Jewish line. So a person would be called their name, son of someone else. If I were to ask you right now, who is Joseph, son of Jacob? You might be thinking of the Joseph from the book of Genesis who went into Egypt and was sold there by his brothers into slavery. Or you might be thinking about the Joseph who was the adopted father of Jesus, whose father's name was also Jacob. Joseph, son of Jacob, would not be terribly significant unless we knew which Joseph, son of Jacob, we were talking about. In case there was any speculation as to whether or not in the book of Ruth, this David was that David, that David, this genealogy confirms it. Genesis 49.10 is when Jacob gathers his children before he passes away and he gives blessings to them. And on Judah, he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The Jewish people had known for hundreds of years that the promise had been that the king, the rulers, would come through the line of Judah. This David, whose father is Jesse, Grandfather is Obed, born to Ruth and Boaz, is in that line. Now, there are some major differences between the way that Boaz redeemed Ruth and the way that God redeems us. And this is how I want to kind of land the plane in the book of Ruth for us today. I want to highlight two ways in which our situation is worse than Ruth's. And then two ways that our redemption in Christ is better. First, Our redemption is better and our situation is worse because as sinners, we deserve death. We deserve separation from God for our own sins. There's no legal loophole that we could leverage for our own relief. If you have a problem with that idea that you need to couch that issue in the nature of God and, and, and go to bat over that one, the idea that you and I are sinners, that we have sin that our iniquities have caused a separation between us and God is attested throughout the entire Bible. It's most clearly evidenced in the New Testament and the kind of separation that it was. So great, so vast that our works could never get us back into God's good graces. We could never get God's attention by our good works. And so because of this, we are far worse off than Ruth. Ruth needed a redeemer. She did. And if she didn't get a redeemer, life would have been hard for her. But if we don't get a redeemer, we spend an eternity separated from God for forever. 
Second reason that our situation is worse is that there was no other to redeem us. We were hopeless. I was thinking Ephesians chapter 2 just this morning. That before we had God, we were hopeless and without God. Ruth had potential. Maybe this near redeemer Ned might have showed up. If, if Boaz wasn't there, he might have eventually been pressured into, into taking her as a wife and being there for her, watching out for her, redeeming her. Maybe if not Boaz, there, maybe there was someone later. It's possible that could have been the case. With us, it's not so. There's no other to redeem us. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's it. Everywhere you look, you're going to find people trying to find redemption out of the folly, the fallenness, the brokenness of this world by some redeemer, some redemption. Whether it's themselves, I can do this on my own, or it's appealing to another God, I'll get some other God to do this for me. The Bible makes it clear. There is no other one who can redeem you from your fallen state and sin. Jesus alone. Because our situation is worse than Ruth's, the redemption extended to us as believers is far better. First, it is better because we were redeemed by God's only son. Our redeemer is perfect. Not merely a worthy man. Not merely one that the reputation has been built up is pretty good. Perfect. There are two heroes throughout the story of Ruth. Ruth and Boaz. Ruth is the faithful companion. All chapter one is pushing us towards seeing, wow, Ruth really stepped up for her mother-in-law here. She refuses to abandon her mother-in-law. <coughs> she willingly suffers alongside her. And unlike Naomi, Ruth chooses this life after loss. And not only this, but she works hard to provide for her mother. She's a, she's a hero of chapter one and some of chapter two. But Boaz is the hero of the rest of the book. He's the compassionate provider. He offers provision and protection even for the undeserving outsider. But Jesus is better than both of these heroes. Not only is our, our redeemer better, but the price paid for the redemption is better. The price paid for our redemption from sin was the blood of Jesus, the life of the only Son of God. Whereas Boaz paid some amount of money to redeem Ruth, we don't know how much, Jesus pays the price of his life. That means that we are not our own any longer. We don't belong to self. We were bought by Jesus and we belong to him. For the believer today, as we see this book of Ruth unfold, it's hard for us to not see all over the place Jesus popping up. I think it's right for us to see that. I think the connection to David at the end is a sure way to see this path pointing to God's sovereign working that will lead to the ultimate redeemer of Jesus. But it's not just that he will be the ultimate redeemer in the future after Ruth, but that as the redeemed, we are no longer our own. This last month, everywhere I've been driving around my neighborhood, I've seen the rainbow colored flags. You've seen those around a whole lot. I think there's some about this being Pride Month. I don't know if it's this month, June or May, or what month it was. One of the central frustrations that believers have with the idea of having pride in sinful lifestyles is that as believers, we ought not have pride in anything other than God. Our identity is not in anything of ourselves. 
It's in him. This means that God is not just another counselor at our board of executives in our life. Who throws helpful counsel onto the table that we decide whether or not we'll follow. We are servants of God. We are heirs of God. We are purchased by him, belonging to him. Our identity is not our own, but is belonging to him. My hope as we read through the book of Ruth, as we read through the book of Ruth, is that we would see these themes, that we'd have questions answered, that we would have the idea of what it means to be a redeemer, and that laid out in the Old Testament would give us a richer and a fuller understanding of what it means that Jesus redeemed us. And I hope that our worship comes out of that for the rest of this week. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. I thank you for this morning and for this book. I pray that it would be helpful that the next time that someone reads through this book in a Bible study or with a friend or is answering questions or maybe Lord is just pondering, considering the idea of what it means that we are redeemed, that Jesus is our redeemer. Father, I pray that this would come the new light that it would be helpful, that it would expose truths that they may not have seen prior. Lord, help lift our souls up in worship as a result of the book of Ruth. Let us consider the Old Testament important to our lives, applicable to our lives, helpful for us. And let our worship be more rich and full because of what we see and understand in the Old Testament. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.